Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by a friend that has corresponded with me over email for a year or so, Dr. Drew Johnson, who is the director of the Center for Hebraic Studies uh, and is a associate professor, an associate professor of biblical studies at the King's College in New York City. Um, I asked Dr. Johnson to come and join us today to talk about his most recent book, Biblical Philosophy, a Hebraic Approach to the Old and New Testaments, which, uh, as, 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 as Drew knows, is a topic very dear to my own heart, uh, and in which, uh, when I saw that he was releasing this book, I was very, very excited and picked it up and have been very stimulated by it. And maybe, uh, uh, Dr. Johnson, first of all, just thanks for being here. I'm very delighted to have oh, you on the my program. my pleasure and an honor to be on anybody's <laughs> podcast talking about uh, my, my love, so... Oh, good. Oh, that's 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 wonderful. And uh, maybe maybe one way we can open this up is just to to highlight uh, for for those who who are sort of approaching this without a map of the conversation out there, what what sort of what what that map of the conversation is. What's going on in one field and then in another field that you're sort of trying to mediate in this text? Because that seems to be a big part of the motivation for writing it. Yeah, um, so we could you could map it out several ways, just like you can map water tables versus tourist maps, right? Um, right. So I th think the map I would put is not field versus field, but culture versus culture. So thinking of um, the Greco-Roman culture as having its own philosophical world, the um, the ancient Near East, you know, Egypt having its own kind of quasi-philosophical world, Mesopotamia also having a quasi-philosophical world an intellectual tradition in which they think about the nature of reality, the nature of truth, the nature, the logical relations, et cetera. And I would say the Hebrews also had their own intellectual world that's revealed in, in the Hebrew scriptures. Um, and, and so saying it that way, I've kind of given priority to the history that has unfolded through these various mm -hmm. textual and inscription traditions that we see um, across the, the Mediterranean basin to the east. And now you can pull it, you know, fast forward a few thousand years to today, right, where we read. Uh, so how do we, in what classes do we read these different traditions, right? So if you were telling me, oh, at college, I'm taking a class and we're reading all the great ancient Egyptian stories and, and wisdom literature, et cetera, I'd say, oh, you're in an archaeology class or maybe a classics class or ancient Near East class or ancient civilizations class. Uh, and if you said, well, I'm, re I'm reading Plato's Republic, I'd say, okay, so you're in probably a political uh, philosophy class, or you're in a introduction to philosophy, or maybe an int introduction to political philosophy or something like that. Um, and so I think the, the, and if we just throw scripture in there and say the older New Testament, what classes are you going to read those in? Um, you're typically going to read those in a religion class, or if you're in a Christian right. institution, an old or a New Testament class. Um, and maybe a theology, if we're really lucky, your theology class is reading the Bible in some way. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, somewhat facetious, but not entirely facetious, because yes. that's, that's an honestly horrible thing that really does happen. Um, but in that, and in, in, you can keep on going, you know, Confucius, uh, you know, an Asian studies class, but, you know, I, I took an analytic philosophy degree. And even in that analytic philosophy program, analytic philosophy is a very modern cutting version of philosophy. Um, you know, I took an Asian philosophy seminar where we were reading Confucius, uh, the Analects, the Tao Te Ching, Wai Lao Tzu, right. uh, and, including um, uh, Bhagavad Gita and, and uh, Central Asian texts as well. At no point would uh, most of us ever think that if you're reading the Bible, you're going to be doing that in a philosophy class and putting the intellectual world of the Hebraic authors, and I'm including the New Testament authors as part of that Hebraic tradition, toe-to-toe uh, -to -toe, uh, with something like the Roman tradition or even the mm. modern scientific epistemology mm. or modern versions of truth, logic, and justification, etc. cetera. Um, and so I think as somebody who who has read some of these texts from across these traditions, um, I just have to ask the question, why not? Like what principled reason uh, would there be for separating those texts out? And every reason I've heard is just lame so far and actually doesn't, is not very philosophically right. valid. <laughs> right. Maybe one way of uh, stating that first question differently, because actually that, that the distinctions you were just making is something I, I really wanted elicited. Uh, 
but there's also, as I, as I understood in the, I think the introduction to the book in the first chapter, mm. there's also a sort of, uh, in modern scholarship, sort of associations with where the Hebrew tradition fits with the philosophical tradition. And so it's like, there's one group, I, I want to say biblical, oh, yeah. studies, yeah. biblical studies that maybe says, philosophy uh, the philosophical tradition is is kind of foreign to the hebrew mind as it were right then you get maybe a, a history of philosophy discussion and every now and again in these kind of texts you're mentioning where you get maybe an anthology or something uh, there's a there's a, a a looser association of the hebrew tradition in little pieces with yeah. sort of perennial wisdom tradition and it seems like the book is also trying to mediate sort of between these groups of scholars really who don't talk to each other very much yeah Maybe you could no, comment that's on ex that. That's exactly right. So even, I mean, even amongst biblical scholars, right? So I can almost tell what kind of graduate training you had if you're an Old Testament scholar by how you react to the following uh, assumption. Uh, the Hebrew Bible, the intellectual world of the Hebrew Bible. So the Hebrew Bible as its own intellectual world belongs alongside the Greco-Roman tradition and not alongside the Egyptian and Mesopotamian tradition, like that it's actually right. vastly different and actually is something similar to the Greco-Roman tradition in the way that it philosophizes about the world. Now, if you're raised, and this is my grand sweep uh, assumption, if you were raised in a uh, biblical studies tradition that didn't have a strong ancient Near Eastern uh, uh, tradition uh, associated with it, so if you went to maybe a seminary where you didn't have an ancient Near Eastern scholar, you didn't have a Sumerologist, a Syriologist, Egyptologist on staff teaching you, or somebody trained in that tradition, then you might think that that's crazy, right? That, wait, the Hebrew right. Bible, no, it should definitely be put alongside the Egyptians and the Mesopotamians. Those were their peer traditions, right? Right. Um, but when you go to the early 20th century Orientalists, as they used to be called, uh, at the University of Chicago, which is one of the premier um, ancient Near Eastern institutions in the history of the world, um, those guys and gals all thought it was patently obvious that when you turn to the Israelite literature of the Hebrew Bible, or we call the Old Testament, it was clearly in league with the Greco-Romans, and it was clearly, you know, light years ahead, if I can mix my metaphors, of anything the Egyptians or the Mesopotamians, you know, the, either mm. the Assyrians or the Babylonians were doing intellectually. And that's also at the same time accrediting the Mesopotamians and the Egyptians were not lightweights intellectually, right? They right. were doing some very serious engineering, math, um, lexicography, you know, the use of language. They're doing very, very hyper sophisticated things. They had encyclopedic knowledge amongst their scribes and their experts and their wise men. And yet they weren't making the basic philosophical moves that we consider kind of philosophizing in the world today. That kind of thinking about the nature of thinking, thinking about the nature of objects apart from that particular object, thinking about the nature of justice apart right. from a discrete crime or punishment. Right. Um, and it's that simple move that the Hebrews are doing before anybody else. And that makes them look a lot more like these. So mm. when you when you have mm. a scholar who has not ever read any of that ancient Near Eastern thinking of the 20th century, this sounds crazy to them. Um, but what right. I found when I had somebody who actually did come out of the, you know, they were a Bible scholar, but they did University of Chicago or maybe somewhere in Europe. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we had to read those books. Well, yeah, I read Henri Frankfurt. I, I, I read Jan Asman. I, no, no, I, I, I'm familiar with those people who've made this argument. And, and it just seems like common sense to them at that point. Right, right. That's really, that's really fascinating. I was, in fact, um, in part of the, the thing, it seems like if we put this in a contemporaneous sort of background, it seems like part of part of what this becomes relevant to is just a discussion that, that's you know, 150 years old in some ways of what belongs, which texts belong in philosophy more broadly. And so mm -hmm. you see at the end of the 19th century, you know, you start to see like a Schopenhauer, for instance, is reading his Eastern texts. And one of my own professors in my graduate program, Peter, uh, Peter Park, he wrote a book um, that was published by SUNY uh, called mm -hmm. Africa, Asia, and the History of Philosophy. And what he does in that text is sort of looks at uh, history, the kind of history of the history of philosophy, if you mm, will. Yeah. And so what he tries to show is the original sort of German histories of philosophy. Yes. Very consciously sort of think of Kant and Hegel as the climax of philosophy. And so the history of philosophy and the sort of canon associated with it is all seen as sort of like a, a predecessors to what will get you to understand Kant and Hegel. Yeah. Um, 
But then he argues you, you can actually see in the literature a very self-conscious exclusion of African and Eastern texts mm-hmm. within the canon in an era when that even in that era, it was not, it was, you know, there are plenty of people that treated them philosophically. And when you go before this era, everybody is reading Eastern Eastern right. texts in as much as they're available and treating them philosophically. And one of the, in fact, things that you pointed out that was fascinating, I thought, in this text is that very often the claim is sort of like the Bible can't be philosophy because uh, the books are claimed to be inspired. Uh, right. uh, and you make this just fascinating point to me that, you know, when you read the all the texts we consider philosophical in the Greco-Roman period, tons of these people... Uh, you know, identify their insight as quite directly coming from the gods. Yeah. Uh, which is, uh, yeah, totally fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. And so, as you've rightly picked up here in your line of questioning, it's, it's kind of just like a fair is fair. Like, if we're going to, if we're going to treat the Greco Roman literature as philosophy and say, in principle, despite the fact that it has all these weird, wonky theological issues has all these weird, even Platonism and Aristotelianism has these weird theological ideas that the West eventually had to get over, right? And it was only by overcoming those theological ideas that we were able to do math and engineering to the level that we needed to in order for science to flourish in the West. Um, so, you know, we kind of look the other way at that, the weird theological ideas that a circle has to be the supreme form of everything and has to, you know, divinity itself has to be somehow encompassed in, in the sphericity of God. Um, we just kind of go like, Oh, okay. We get that. We see what you're doing there. We don't think it's necessarily true. Jesus didn't come as a circle. We're, we're still okay. Right. (laughs) Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, there really just has been this lack of like apples, apples to apples, uh, comparison where I think at the end of the day, look, the people that I'm citing are not Christians. They're not theists. Many of them are openly atheists. Um, and they're just saying like, I don't know, when we look at all of these, Hebrew texts, they kind of look a lot like the philosophical texts. They just do things very differently. And so once you then adjust for how they do the same thing differently, the fact that they're doing the same thing remains. Yeah. And that that's a really fascinating point, and I think worth making, which is that one could be motivated to sort of chew this book up and find it yummy uh, because the impression might be that biblical philosophy means sort of like the sort of the divine version of philosophy versus oh, yeah. others, which is yeah. not really what you're doing. It really is like, the, it's just the philosophy happened in a, there is a, a cognitive environment element to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it. Nevertheless, there is, I think the, uh, you know, what what is identified in, as secular in one sense, there's a secular identification of comparison where we say this is different. Uh, and, and nevertheless, it is sort of conducive to a Christian confidence in the scriptures, I suppose, yes. <laughs> to say that it was ahead of its time in all these ways. Yeah, that, that, yeah. Is a, uh, that is a polite way to say it. Like, can you believe these ancient Semites were already thinking about the nature of truth and the nature of justice and all the things that Plato would, uh, Plato would much later talk about and think about, you know? And, yes. And, and I think what's we interesting- can believe it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think what's, what should be interesting just for people of the West, whether you're Christian or Jewish or otherwise, is though you know the 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 things that the biblical authors worked through on these notions are the ones that we still believe to this day. So we we don't hang on to mm-hmm. middle platonic platonic ideas in astro in our astronomy or in medicine or anything else. We don't hang on to most of those Greek theological ideas. We've actually let them go in favor of this kind of more critically realistic. Uh, view of the universe that the Hebrew Bible was espousing from the beginning. Um, right. So, and yeah, it, it, so yeah, there's lots of different directions we can go with this, but uh, even in, in justice system, I mean, Tom Holland, the the the, the Oxford historian, ha, has written recently on this, and it was his experience. Tom Holland, not the guy who plays Spider Man, I should say. Right. Uh, three teenage daughters. So yeah. Uh, yeah. (laughs) This Oxford historian who again is openly atheist um, has said, look, by studying the Greco Roman tradition, I came to realize that basically nothing I believe that's true or worthy is from the Greco Roman tradition. It's actually from, he says it's from the Christian tradition. And, and, but if you, if you were to, if I could sit down with him for 30 minutes, I'd be like, Tom, can you quit saying Christian tradition? What you're actually talking about is the Hebrew Bible that has then reified in the Christian tradition. But yes. nothing, nothing he's talking about is actually ex nihilo from the Christian tradition. It's actually right. from the Torah. 
So yeah, it's very. Uh, I'm reminded in that, and I and I don't recall if you mentioned him in the book, but the French scholar Remy Brog. No, makes, I don't. Yeah. Uh, okay, Remy Brog makes a similar argument. His he has a book called um, "Eccentric Culture: A Theory of Western Civilization," mm. and essentially what he mm. argues that 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 Christendom becomes is it adopts the kind of uh, social architecture of the Roman of the of the kind of Roman apparatus but one of the things that was always interesting about Rome is that it was able to sort of absorb difference uh, mm. to some extent and what uh, what Brog argues is that as the Christian tradition grows uh, it's always there's a deep awareness of its foundation in Hebrew in Hebrew texts mm. uh, and that 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 creates what he call what he argues is a, a kind of openness in the Western tradition toward mm. what is outside of it it is actually an intrinsically open tradition interesting uh, and uh, and he sees and he basically argues we see this kind of in Western Europe uh, 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 sort of develop through time and you know are we losing it now because we're not open anymore we are <laughs> you not. know that's sort of the that's the uh, that's the the argument very very fascinating Maybe it's worth um, just kind of, uh, you know, highlighting some of the specifics. Uh, if you were to say, what's the, if we were to talk about the, he, the you know, the Hebraic tradition, the Hebraic philosophical mood, uh, as it were, what would you say is sort of the, 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 the two or three sort of ways of defining what Hebrew philosophy is? So uh, I, I wrestled with this question because when I, I thought, well, okay, I'll just get a good working definition of philosophy, see how that applies to the Greeks, because that's where everybody has to go to prove their right. test case, right? And then, and it was in that move. Now, I, I've got just a master's degree in philosophy, so I'm, I'm not a philosopher. I don't do this professionally. Um, and I, I immediately, as I started uh, reading around definitions of philosophy, ran into the problem of, oh, Every philosopher seems to have a different definition of philosophy. And not like slightly <laughs> different definition. Some of them are radically different definitions. Yes. Like incommensurably different, right? Um, yes. Even people that worked in the same department together. Um, and so, and then somebody tipped me off to this uh, podcast where they just asked a bunch of philosophers to define philosophy. And you can just hear it side by side, like 15 or 20 philosophers just saying, well, here's what I think philosophy is. And you, and you just ask yourself, like, how can these people all be doing the same? How can they be playing the same sport? It doesn't seem like yes. they're in the same ball field together sometimes, yes. right? So uh, that actually was very liberating for me because I thought, okay, I don't have to monkey around with inventing a wheel over and over again. Uh, and it really wasn't what I was interested in because it wasn't that there's a Hebraic philosophy. I think you said it there that the Hebraic mood of philosophy is probably a better way to think about it. Hmm. There's a style to it. In the same way that we could think of there's a Socratic dialogue style of thinking through an issue or maybe getting people to question everything they ever knew about that issue. Um, there is certainly an Aristotelian style of working through a definition of what fits in categories with genus and differentia and creating taxonomies of, of meaning. Um, and, and you can say there's kind of a Hellenistic style. There's certainly a Mesopotamian style that's distinguishable. And the idea is that if I hand you an ancient text and say, what do you think this is? That for most people who read around in the ancient world, they could probably read a little bit and they could say, well, I know they're talking about Egyptian stuff, but this sounds really Roman. So I'm going to guess that this is probably like first century Alexandria or something, right? And there's just, they're stylistic, the way they talk about things, the way they think things are important. You know, like uh, when I when I used to teach philosophy, I'd, I'd have to tell students when we get to the early enlightenment, I'd say like, Look, I know none of you think this way, but there there was a, a large, long time where people thought that uh, there's kind of like good on one end of a continuum, on the other end is not bad or evil, it's nothingness, right? And like right. so I so I know like so as soon as I see that continuum at work, I know I'm somewhere in Europe, right? Uh, right. Arguing, right. So same thing. So as you look across the Hebrew Bible, what coalates and coalesces and emerges as their their kind of style of thinking through an issue. So one of one of those to get to the question you just asked finally, right, um, is to say I, I use the term pixelated or or pointillistic. That right. it's not this linear deductive. I'm going to give you premise one, premise two, premise three, and and then here's the conclusion and spoon feed you what I think is true. It's actually I'm going to give you a story that has uh, part of it is arguing about the nature of of a human here and you're going to get a little more over here and oh here's nature of a human includes sexuality so here's 15 stories on sexuality 
all of which are negative examples of what it's not supposed to be, which you're just like, oh, why, why, you know, you get out of Genesis and you're like, why does everything have to be a negative example? <laughs> right? can't have, why can't we have a positive example of yes. anything, right? Um, and here's some legal reasoning on the same topic that is carving out the space of how to think about this topic. And here's a poem as well that corresponds to the story I just told you and interprets the story for you and tells you more things that are not in the story that you need to understand. And through this kind of piling up, what you're getting is little pixels that as you know, if you go in too close on your computer, well, you can't do it anymore, but you know, you used to be able to like, if you just look too close at your TV, that's right, yeah. all you saw were the little pixels. And it's only by stepping back and seeing how, what color the pixels are and how they're coordinated with each other, does a picture begin to emerge. And I think that abstract notions that are being reasoned about and argued about um, in scripture are like that often there is as you step back and you see the breadcrumbs kind of pixelated across the text you can see a very strong image emerge now what are those breadcrumbs they can be stories they can be strategic use of language or concepts and many and often the strategic use of language and concepts together is what you're really looking for right um, and and as you noted i'm doing interdisciplinary work so you have to have filters like you can't otherwise you get these really ham-fisted theses where everybody goes through and everything fits their theses I'll, you know give me right. a text and i'll show you how it fits what i'm saying and um so well, i had I, to yeah go ahead i was gonna say i think what you did was fairly concrete i, I appreciate it because you're, you're right it's the kind of thesis that's kind of if i could put it this way ballsy enough that it's oh yeah it lends itself to, uh, <laughs> that, that lends itself to to falsification really and right. and, and and in fact that's that like you uh, i think before, before we were uh, uh came on the podcast here, you use this analogy of uh, uh, the problem with interdisciplinary work is that on the one hand, you're at the top of the hill and you can you can kind of see all the conversations and try to put them together. And on the other hand, you're also the easiest to shoot. Right. <laughs> Everybody you, can tell you why you're wrong and why you yes, haven't understood. Why you're, why, most, you yeah. why you're most exposed. It's the kind yeah. of book you write and your wife gets nervous that you're going to get a lot of <laughs> nasty emails. Uh, yeah. But, uh, but nevertheless, uh, uh, you know, it wasn't obvious to me how to shoot it down. Not that I look for such things aggressively, but it, it struck me as a, a solid case. And one of the things you uh, do that I think is fascinating, and, and, and maybe this is part of where you're seeing the kind of work you're, you're doing show up a lot, uh, you have the Center for Hebraic Studies on the one hand, but I'm also seeing this enormous amount of um, you know, Pennington on the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, there does seem right. to be this sort of post-third way, uh, post-third uh, uh, quest for the historical Jesus, sort of like right. we've absorbed that the New Testament is Jewish. We get it. Right. right. <laughs> like we know that now. We're not, you know, nobody needs to deny. Nevertheless, you can kind of go back, you can look at it still and say, but we're seeing, you know, just what we see in all Second Temple Judaism here, which is... right a thick overlapping conversation with Hellenization and its styles. And one of the things your book does really well, I think, is show that the New Testament, you see sort of a clear, thick inheritance of the Hebraic style, as you call it. Right. But you also see it kind of in conversation and sometimes in the wrapping of a kind of uh, Hellenistic presentation, sometimes in its vocabulary and sometimes in its style. And I think that's, uh, 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 that, that's, that's a very fascinating thing as well. And your application of this, of course, I would it, it seems to be as as largely you 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 walk through the New Testament doing uh, epistemological things, which you've done a lot of work on justification and and and, and knowing. In fact, that you end with a discussion of trust, and I think that's a, a wonderful section of the book. But Thank I wonder, um, I would love to hear your thoughts on. The, the kind of ontology metaphysics side of things like it, because this is a you and i have talked about this a little bit in the past and yeah, now, I'm, I'm, now i'm gonna turn your face red i'm gonna ask I'm, you. I'm laughing because uh so the book uh is not the manuscript i submitted it had one extra chapter on it which reviewers oh. one two and three all had the same comment which was x that chapter <laughs> and it was on uh, metaphysics so oh. Um, well, uh, well, 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 we good. We'll extract all the secret, yeah. <laughs> well, sacred fire. Well, right? and and they were right. It, it was is because I had all. I was trying to prove, and I thought, well, maybe I should just hit metaphysics so people. And I and the chapter was like, look, I'm not saying this is what I think is true. I'm just saying here's a possible way you could think about metaphysics. And the reviewers were very right and wise to say, like, look, it's too tentative. You you need more space to develop it. So either write three more chapters or just cut it. And so, ah. 
So are we allowed to get uh, in public your, uh, your, your tentative, what you wanted tentatively to do with metaphysics? Um, yeah, it's not that interesting. Um, it, it was really, it, it was an argument that I was going into, this is really nerdy stuff, but uh, the use of hand leaning rituals. So if you think about placing your hand on th somebody's thigh to receive a blessing, right. the placing of your hand on top of the animals you sacrifice it, Yom Kippur when they place the sins of Israel on top of yeah. the animal, uh, which continues on to the New Testament in really interesting spots. So um, the ordination or the, the laying on of hands laying of Timothy, hands, yeah. right, yeah. Uh, and what was received. And so I was looking at that as kind of a, a simple test case of here's something that to me and everybody I know, and then you read lots of literature, like what, you know, I always ask my class when I get to like, what do you think is going on here? Like, uh, and, the, and the question is, okay, so Yom Kippur is the, the sins of Israel by the high priest are laid upon, and it says, and, and he shall put it upon the, the goat, right? Like right. Natan, Natan, which is to give or to put a point. Um, and, uh, and then you're like, okay, how does this, like all the sins of Israel are gathered up into the high priest and then move down his, cause it's two handed, uh, ritual. It's yeah. the only two handed laying on of hands and moves down his two hands. And is it like 50, 50 goes down, one goes down the left, one goes down the right. Yeah. Um, and, and as I walked and, and, and then I tried to say, okay, well, here's how I think modern or medieval metaphysics um, would think about this problem, right? And the, the, the problem is, is if there's some kind of metaphysical substance there, okay, you any, this is really tentative. I just want to. Oh yeah, no, right? no, this, this is great. This is what I'm trying to think about. Yeah. The whole point of having a metaphysical substance there is that it's not necessarily bound up in history time. Like it, it doesn't necessarily need to have some kind of informed substance, right? It's just some right. raw substance called sin. But the problem with that is sin is all historically particular stuff, right? Right. Um, it's particular, even if it's the sin of an institution or a group of people or the sin of an individual, it's all like very historically, particularly informed. So how do you, yeah. so you have problem number one, which is like, how do you describe a metaphysical substance that is purely historically Neg particular? Negation right? as well. Yeah. 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 So it just seems to have like a, prima facie problem to it from a metaphysical perspective and then so that was just like i don't think that route will actually work I, that, that's not the droid you're looking for when it comes to the metaphysics of sin moving down the priest right hand. now someone maybe has worked this out and i and i'll just have to read that and go oh okay yeah, i had not thought about that but but even if you get past that um there's really this other issue which as you read through uh, all those texts and you just say let's take transfer metaphysical transfer out of the mix and just say that's not what's going on then really it doesn't the texts themselves don't actually seem to be depicting metaphysical transfer and i'm just looking across all the texts that use this term samach which is to to hand lay basically right um and, and that have the same samach plus this conception of something that seems to be going from one to another. And it really, I, I th at the end of the day, you actually, it doesn't seem like they think things are moving be between the two participants, but it's actually the process of laying the hand on metaphysically reconfigures the thing to do this job that it's meant to do. Interesting. Now. Almost um, like a, a God's hands in the dirt in creation or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. It's, it's a metaphysical reorientation. So it's meant to do this new thing that it's commissioned to do. Um, and if you look at all those cases with that rubric in mind, then there is something metaphysical going on and it, and it's not, it doesn't require transfer of any way. Yeah. It's actually participation, participation in the, the ceremony itself is, is what reconfigures it. Um, and I, I don't know if you could say much more beyond that. I'm sure somebody with really solid yeah. metaphysics could go go into detail. So but maybe that's as far a, as I'd be willing to go. Maybe a more uh, a more um, popular test case would be really all the controversies in the last several years about the doctrine of God, because one of the tensions you see is that uh, you know one narrative is sort of like there's this kind of vibrant depiction of God uh, in the Old Testament. It's very personalist. You know, in the New Testament, you see, you know, in whom there's no shadow of turning whatsoever. Mm. There's still some Hebrew there, but you can kind of, where do you get the shadow metaphor? Well, that's... <laughs> Sounds very platonic, yeah. Yeah, right. so you get those kinds of metaphors mixed together, and then the church sort of gets Greekized. You know, that's yeah, one yeah. narrative. And I'm curious, like, um, uh, 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 
you know, in, in one strategy is to sort of take sort of developed sort of ecclesiastical doctrines, all our omnis, you know, that we've, you know, inherited basically, and then sort of go back and find the proof texts in the New and Old Testaments for right. these omnis. Right. Uh, uh, and I think another way of doing this perhaps would be to say, uh, uh, and I'm just kind of wondering what, what you would think of thinking of it this way is to think that the Hebrews really are in their own cognitive environment and the New Testament really is in its own cognitive environment. And what you see is not so much this developed thing, uh, sort of, you know, obviously just grabbable out of these couple of bags, like right. immediately, but you rather see a kind of, well, really it's just a, a the scripture itself almost reflects a developing conversation in human thought itself. Mm -hmm. It straddles uh, different cognitive environments and actually in its own way, sort of uh, traces, uh, you might say, some development uh, in the thought about God. Uh, I wonder what you'd say about that. Yeah, I have no idea. I mean, I'm tempted to say, um, this is uh, Peter Lightheart, who some of your listeners might know who he is, but um, he, he came and gave a talk uh, for the Center for Hebraic Thought here on uh, is God perfect and does it matter? And and he went after my, <laughs> the one question I took a lot of exceptions to in my ordination uh, in Westminster Confession was question four, um, what is God, right? Um, and so if you just take that kind of what is God, uh, you know, uh, that that approach that there's something we can say about the nature of what God is, um, which he just deconstructs that that whole thing, right? Like that that actually it might be a silly question, um, or if it is a meaningful question, then it has to be laid out in a very carefully historical, not kind of abstract Greek metaphysical uh, category. If we're to honor the biblical th uh, thinkers, and but one of the things he did in that talk was he talked about like this notion that there is a development of thought that, that, um, and I wonder, I guess the problem for me, uh, I, anytime you push the progress button, I'm going to get really nervous. Right. Um, because sure. there's all kinds of heinous evils, theological and physical that come from people who want to make progress arguments. Right. Um, so I think maybe rather than saying development of thinking, uh, and, and saying if by development, we mean, that that idea becomes richer as it moves into different cultures and has to be translated for those cultures, then I would say, yes. Um, if we mean by development, we mean brand new ideas that did not exist before. Um, um, I, I would be very tentative to say that we don't have something. I, I have a weird, I, I have this add extra sufficiency of scripture doctrine in my mind that actually scripture is philosophically sufficient uh, to do what we need it to do. Um, and that, that there might be a way in which we might want to call it development because it sounds different than when the way the biblical authors are, are saying it. But I would want to say we're probably just extending their thinking into novel circumstances that they hadn't thought about before. Which I would yeah. say is part of, is part of their tradition as well, and you and you see that within the Hebrew Bible, you see the Torah lays out certain prescriptions and ways of thinking about things, and then you see the prophets extending that thinking into new circumstances that weren't right. even around and during the you know during the time of the Torah, as it were. Yeah, what would make an interesting? I don't mean necessarily from you, but from whoever, but an interesting sequel to a book like this, and I, in fact, long wanted to see this, is to see how these ideas get translated into uh, how the, 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 the philosophical style, if you will, uh, and, and the particular biblical insights filter very in a fine grained way into the theologies of the first couple centuries of the church. Oh yeah. yeah. Because very often it is sort of like Greek wins. And yet um, uh, even in somebody like Aquinas, even in the high metaphysical tradition, one of the really interesting focuses does nevertheless seem to be a, a, a very rich philosophy of man uh, mm. and, of, and of personhood, interestingly. That's another thing. Right. It stops and checks him every once in a while where he has to say, where he has to regrettably admit the philosopher is wrong and that, yes. and that yes. the Hebrew it, Bible it, is right on this issue. Yeah, and you see an interesting, you see the in an interesting way some of the emphases in the Hebrew tradition in uh, uh, one of them in particular that I find fascinating, and I'd, I'd love to see work on this. In fact, I think Cam Clousing is just about the only person I've ever seen try to do this very robustly is Bavink, 
and Cam mm. Clausing is just about to publish his dissertation on this and this theme involving. But it's the the role that the relationship between metaphysics and history uh, I find very fascinating because right. on one hand you seem to have these sort of just timeless structures, and yet meaning in the Hebrew Bible is very much connected to development. Uh, right. it's, you know, uh, and so how do you put those together? Uh, and it's it's interesting to me, uh, Bavink very explicitly is trying to do sort of classical metaphysics, but with a sort of metaphysically important role for historical development, which is which yeah. is fascinating to me. But one one uh, this is another completely speculative question before we get back to something really concrete. But uh, I often wonder. Uh, this is from Julian Marius, but Julian Marius he, he wrote a history of philosophy, but then he wrote this other weird little book called a, a biography of philosophy. Hmm. And he tries to reconstruct what was the original sort of project going on in the pre-Socratics. You know, your hmm. theory is doing all is water and all is this and all is that and all is the other. Um, uh, but he basically argues that the early Greek philosophical project is very much a sort of search for the unity behind all things. That seems hmm. to be the, uh, and, I, and I wonder uh, when I go back after kind of hearing that motif and then going and reading Paul, uh, it's interesting to see that what what is for them a timeless static structure that sort of makes the union, unity of all things. It's fascinating to me that Paul um, almost almost speaks about a metaphysical and a historical unity at the same time oh, yeah. through the person of the Christ. But it's an interesting thing where it's very much clearly summarizing redemptive history. It's a very Hebraic thing right. in the story, uh, and yet. Paul is also doing this vertical thing where Christ really does sort of bring together and unify uh, all of the, the vertical structures as well. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I wonder if that's a, a, it would be an interesting uh, study of, is Paul doing something kind of Greek in his, what he does even with Christology? Well, Greek and Hebrew at the same time, really. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, and I, I think, and I, I don't think it's Greek and Hebrew. I would say it's it's Greek because he's Hebrew, right? So uh, he's, oh, fair. He's, yeah. he's, he's making Greek moves because he's speaking to Greek speaking people. As, as I argue in the book, like the one unifying feature of his writing that's been found, there's no philological connection. There doesn't seem to be any conceptual center to Paul's writing. Uh, the only thing people have, have found is that uh, it's, it's an uh, audience contingent. Who, who Paul is writing to determines what he says, right? Um, mm. Which... See, I mean, these are actual philological studies that we're looking at, like, well, okay, what words, ideas does he come back to over and over again? Well, it just depends on who he's writing to, um, which he, I think, admits at some point to the Jew, he's a Jew, to the Gentile, he's a Gentile, right? Yeah. Um, and, and I think you can even see, and this is one of the, the conceptual moves, we always jump to Paul because we think he's a systematic theologian, um, which right. I, don't, I don't necessarily think he is, and I don't think most Pauline scholars think he is. Um, but if you jump back to what he considers this philosophical source book that he thinks, that actually Jonathan Pennington is the one who in a conversation, he, you know, he told me this little gem and I was like, oh, that's a good way to put it. You know, that Jesus and Paul, if you want to take those two primary figures, um, they clearly understand things about the Greco-Roman tradition and, and how much Paul did and how much Jesus did, it can be debated, but they seem to have some facility with what's going on in Greco-Roman thought, at least in the air of their day. Um, and, uh, what's interesting though, is that they take Hebraic thought, right? They're always pulling, pulling back all the way to the depths of the Torah and pulling forward through the prophets and the Psalms. And they think that Hebraic thought is sophisticated enough and powerful enough to put toe to toe with any Greco Roman thought of their day. And Hebraic thought is right. Right. So when people are like, like, like Jonathan Pennington points out this virtue ethic tradition in the Sermon on the Mount. You can see elements that the, the language of the virtue ethic tradition are being employed there in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and you have to say yes, but it's not because the virtue ethic tradition is correct. It's because it overlaps sufficiently with this better tradition called this more full and comprehensive mm -hmm. tradition called Hebraic philosophy, Hebraic thought, whatever you want to call it. Um, and so even what you said, looking for the unity in all things, I think that's, I think that's a Okay, so I just said there's no definition of philosophy, but if you go with that rubric, which I think is a really handy one, you can see this in Exodus and beyond. You can see God reasoning with Israel that God himself is the thing that unites the universe yeah. together. And he doesn't do it by a discourse on the unity of the universe through him and the metaphysics of him. He does it by showing like, oh, you thought 
water uh, comes from these gods. Okay, no, it comes from me. You think you think uh, these gods are in control of the world? No, yeah. it comes from me. You think that you uh, you will die in the desert if you have? No, I will actually feed you while I'm in the desert. So it's not just a metaphysical being in relation. It's a caring, loving relation. So I'm going to take care. You're going to whine. I'm going to let some of you die because you're whining, but I'm going to take care of you because I care about you. And I've made this promise to your father. So it's, again, he, by the time you get to Canaan, he's actually given them historically voracious reasons to understand that he is actually the thing that holds everything together. And anything else they have attempted to turn to turns out to be foolish in light of that. Um, yeah. I think what happens, though, is because it's God speaking to people, we don't think it's philosophical reasoning. And I'm just like, if you if you just changed his name to Clarissa instead of Yahweh throughout those texts, you would yeah. be like, who is Clarissa? And why is she constantly reasoning with these folks who are Interesting. You know, so obstinate, you know? And there's even... Often when I read this, again, it's interesting when you when you really do pair the the, the ancient Hebrew texts with their cultural counterparts, uh, even little things like the fact that God is not um, uh, in most of the accounts, the gods are sort of part of the kind of stuff that differentiates out of a cosmic soup. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's very interesting uh, that 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 the differentiating stuff, the tohu and bohu mass, you know the that are pulled apart. The very fact that God is outside of the differentiating stuff, uh, perhaps to the Hebrew mind, suggested a mode of unity uh, that that is that is not like most physical things. And yeah. some of it's you know it's not philosophically um, stared at very you know super specifically. It's all as you put it, it's in instances. Yeah, uh, and usually very on the ground instances. Uh, I, I would also point out that. Because I think a lot of people get frustrated with that, um, you know, especially if you've ever had a professor or a teacher who is like Robert California off the office, you know, where people ask him very direct questions like, are we going to get fired or not? And he's like, let me tell you a story about a boy who owned a cow, you know, and, um, let me tell you another story. Right. So I think some people, if you say like, look, they're reasoning with you about the nature uh, of whatever truth or justice or something like that. Um, they're just going to do it through all these stories and, and people get very, you know, put off by that rightfully so because it's, it can be, it requires a little bit of attention, soaking in the text, thinking about all the various ways in which these ideas are tied together. And also it, it requires you to ultimately value the biblical text as doing its own form of theology yeah. that is better than whatever tradition of theology you've ever been handed, including Bavink, God rest his soul. Um, oh, so, here <laughs> on this uh, program. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I, but, but I will, I, I want to then normalize the data then. Okay. This sounds like it's difficult, onerous, painful, weird, you know, so I'm supposed to learn philosophy by just listening to a bunch of stories and seeing how poetry interprets stories and then law helps shape the reasons. Um, I say, look, this is how you learn anything with skill, right? If you want to be a right. welder, you're going to learn some basics, right? And then they're going to give you all kinds of funky things to weld to, to see how discerning of a welder you are. If you if you want to become a doctor, same thing. You're going to get lots of instances of bodies. You you know, as I was telling somebody else, you don't you don't learn how to operate as a surgeon on Bob Bob McClandon, you know, and like, hey, we're we come to medical school for Bob McClandon. We're just going to learn about his body. You learn how to how to do things on anybody's body who walks into your office, right. no matter what age or shape they're in. Um, and so this kind of idea of pixelating, uh, giving you instance after instance right. after instance is, is both teaching. I mean, I think it's part of the genius of it as a, as a professional teacher. It's at the same time teaching you and developing discernment, right? So it's, not, it's never right. just giving you data, although the presumption is there's always some baseline memorizing and kind of- Yeah, the grammar. Block work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's stuff you have, always have to do, right? Um, there, there, there's always that basic learning, but when you get into the actual, like, okay, let's think about what's being said across these texts, across Genesis and Exodus alone, what's being about political power and the use of political power, about women's power and men, you know, the supposed patriarchy that exists in these texts, and you read them, you're like, this doesn't look like any patriarchy is going on. The women are all in charge and the men listen to them every single time, right? And yeah. you, get into, you get into Exodus 1 and it's like, and here are the women again, just, you know, the men are saying stuff, but the women aren't listening to them and the women are right. And we're meant to understand the women are right, but the women were wrong in Genesis, right? So these are like, 
it, it sounds like it's onerous, but I would just want to say our best ways of understanding anything with fine skill discernment always include this style of learning as the kind of premium version of learning. Hmm. That's a that's a great segue as we as we sort of close down here. I mean, you've already made it, I think, very, very practical. And I, I think the comments you're making are spot on. And of course, the irony is that, you know, the more we understand even Greek philosophy, you, you point out Pierre Hadot in this work. Right, right. Philosophy yeah. is a way of life. Pennington is also drawn on his work. Uh, uh, it turns out even the, the most uh, uh, sort of abstract philosophy involved bodies yeah. <laughs> and practices and rituals and that's uh <laughs> and in fact it's sort of a it's a, to some extent a kind of modern aberration that, that that philosophy is sort of people regurgitating formulas at their computer and it's disconnected right. from a community right. or uh but but to, to to bring it all the way down um um you know, one of the things you highlight, I, and I think this is just, this is worth it, because here we're talking about the Bible. Christians, of course, have a certain attachment to this as God's word. And one of the big things you talk about from the scriptures is really a kind of doctrine of, or maybe you sort of develop a philosophy of trust. What hmm. role does trust play in epistemic formation? Uh, and maybe you could sort of close us with just talking about what is the Bible doing with the theme of trust? Uh, uh, and uh uh, and, you know, how does that, you know, you know basically, how does this biblical philosophy material, this motif, help us think about this? The, uh, I, I'm glad you keep saying the word trust and not faith, um, because faith is such a problematic term. I get triggered by faith. I ban it in my classes as a, you can't, you know, I have this list of words you can't use in essays. And faith is one of them because everybody misuses it and they mean something slightly different or they mean something completely unbiblical by it, right? So they often, I always say, if you, I, I'm right on Broadway here in New York City. If you walk down the street and ask people, what does faith mean, to have faith in something? They're going to say, well, it means to believe it without seeing it or believe it without having reasons or, you know, blindly yeah. really close your eyes and step off a cliff. And then as you work through uh, scripture, you see there is a, a Hebrew, term. actually it's one of the few Hebrew terms that's made it into common English, right, is aman or amen, as we say at the end, yeah. uh, right? Um, and munah, a cognate word to aman, is is actually gets translated faith, faithfulness, or uh, trust, trustworthy in that sense. And that trust plays this role. And I, I guess the, the boogeyman here of the story is the idea that we can kind of know anything independently on our own, right? Hmm. So I've had students, <laughs> sorry, I'm not making fun of any particular student, but I have students who tell me, oh, I'm an autodidact, right? I, I'm a self-teacher, right? Right. And, uh, and I'm like, really? So how, how did you learn algebra? And they're like, oh, I read a book on it. And I'm like, well, then you're not a freaking autodidact. <laughs> Somebody took the time to very carefully write out a book that you could follow. You know, you had a person over your shoulder pointing out all that stuff to you. You just didn't yes. know it because you think a book is data. And yeah. It doesn't have a human being that worked very hard to make that understandable yeah. to you. You're right? not a, you're, you're not Raymond coming up with new geometry. Right. Uh, exactly. Right. <laughs> and, and so even him or Galois or, or, you know, people who are inventing these new ideas or Cantor with his infinities uh, and, and set theory, um, the, they're not de novo out of nowhere. They're, right. they're built up through traditions that have already been imbued into the bodies and, and minds. And I would say bodies and minds are working together always. Right. Um, so you, you will always have somebody so it's over us pointing things out that give us the skill. Now, once we got the skill, we can run with it, right? So I didn't have to learn every single number multiplied times every single number in order to do multiplication. I learned the skill and then I could take off with the skill and apply it to new versions of multiplication, new number, you know, give me any number and I can multiply it, right? Because right. I have the skill. But that initial, that initial phase of learning uh, where I'm trying to become discerning, right? To where you can hand me any number, it requires trusting in people. And the Bible is writing constantly about, um, uh, about this issue of who you trust, who you, whose voice you listen to. It begins in the garden. They listen to the voice of the serpent and the man is indicted for listening to the voice of the woman who's, who is ironic because he and her are both listening to the voice of the serpent when that all goes down. Right. Um, and then, you know, you can, you can almost slice and dice the entirety of Israel's history all the way up through the New Testament by who's who is listening to whose voice and doing what they say right and and god spends in in or i would just say like for a god who people 
often think is just demanding people to obey him. I mean, I know that's the character of the biblical God. I'm like, okay, if it is a God who's demanding that people obey him, um, it is uncanny how much time he spends giving them reasons why they should trust him. Uh, So, and you can think of lots of places with Abraham, Mm. Isaac, and then Jacob, and then Joseph as well. But then you get to Moses and it, it's just hammering you over the head, right? Um, you have, the, you have the, the birth story, which we, you know, who knows whether how much Moses was in tune with that. But when he calls Moses, Moses is just like, no, every, everything that God says, Moses is just like, no, uh-uh, no. wrong. Sorry, yeah. God, you don't understand not what impressive. you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's not going to work. And God keeps reasoning with him and giving him reasons to trust him. And it's, and he does eventually run out, right? He like the fifth objection, God says, and God was grew angry with them. And then he, and then he relented and went, I think it was after the, I'm a, I'm a stutterer or I'm a stumbler of speech. Um, so God does what we all do with our kids every now right, and again. And right, says, right. Fine, we'll, fine. We'll, you can we'll, have somebody else. Right. You know? We'll we'll walk we'll walk down that road. But in the same thing with Jesus, I mean, you think about his his years of public ministry. How much of that was speech and action that are in coordination that give people sufficient reasons to trust him? And mm. so, and then there seems to be some magical line that when you provided those reasons, and then there will be an ask that comes along that says, okay, now I need you to trust me and go do these things. So like the sending of the 72 or the sending of the 12 and the gospels. Okay. You've seen me do this. You're all, you all are knuckleheads who clearly don't understand anything. And look, that foreign woman over there understood what I was doing and you guys don't understand. Right. But he eventually gets to the point where he sends them out. They do the things they trust them. They come back with great joy because when they went and did the things that he, that they trusted him to do, it actually happened the way it was supposed to. Hmm. So this is kind of the formula of how do we know anything? Well, we know it by first figuring out who we should be listening to. And again, this is the garden story because you listened to the voice of your wife and ate of the fruit hmm. of the tree, which I commanded you not to eat of it. And that, that is the story of Israel. Be, you know, uh, even think of King Saul um, when Samuel confronts him. Why did you do this? You, you know, um, and he said, you're right. I was afraid and I listened to the voice of the people rather than to God. Is not to listen to God better than the sacrifice of rams, right? Mm-hmm. So this is the indictment all the way through to the point. Sorry, if you'll let me riff for one second. No, please. Go ahead. Um, to the point. I mean, think about Jesus' disciples are with him for years. He asked him, who do people think that I am? And I'm thinking of Mark's gospel here. And they eventually, you know, Peter eventually comes up with you, the Christ, great. And then, and then he begins to say, because I'm the Christ, I'm going to have to suffer and many things. And Peter pulls him aside and corrects him because Peter thinks he has misunderstood the role of the Messiah, right? <laughs> Which, and then Mark is great because he says, and then Jesus turned to them and spoke plainly, right? It's this very unusual word, kind of like, okay, I'm going to speak to you like five-year-olds now because you need to hear yes. it. Uh, and then the next scene, he takes Peter, James, and John up on the mount where he is transfigured in front of. Now, notice that was about Messiah. He's not confi- uh, transfigured in front of two kings. He's not transfigured in front of Saul and, and David, who are the messianic kings of Israel. He's transfigured in front of the prophets, uh, Moses and, uh, and Elijah. And God's, the clouds open up, God's voice descends, and he says one sentence, right? And so this is one of those points where you're like, Okay, if the clouds open up and God's voice descends and Jesus is all bleached white in front of you, I feel like we should really pay attention to what God is going to say. Like this, this is yeah. one of those special Zero in moments. The dials. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Everybody tune in real tight here. What does he say? He quotes Deuteronomy 18. Well, this is my beloved son. So, like that special identification with Jesus. Listen to him. To him you shall listen. That's all he says. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and if you, any reasonable person, any non-Christian who's not used to these texts is reading that story, they're, they're going to stop and ask and say, were, were they not listening to him? What's the problem here? And, and, and if you came out of the previous story um, before the Jesus moment or the Christ moment, you would realize like, no, this is having hearts, have your hearts hardened, having eyes, do you not see, having ears, do you not hear, do you not understand mm-hmm. when I, when I did all of these things? I mean, he's, He's chastising them, like Mark is describing them as their hearts harden. That happens twice, and and Jesus is chastising them with the language of Isaiah six: harden their hearts, call, callous their hearts, yeah, uh, right. blind their eyes. Right. Um, it, the the rhetoric that's being used here is about like, have I not given you enough reasons to listen to me? And Mark four yeah. begins with, "Listen up, 
a power a sower went into the field and and with many such parables he he told them as they were able to listen to him and and the, the skies and the sea he calms the storm and the and the disciples ask each other who is this that even the seas and the winds listen to him right so this issue of to whom we listen is actually possibly the greatest epistemological issue in scripture and i would say it's equally today if you have kids or you're around young people and yeah. seeing them being formed it's who they're listening to who interpret who grinds the lenses through which they see the world if you put it that way i'm just finishing up a course with davenet on the I just finished it this last week on the philosophy of modernity sort of what oh, how yeah. do we interpret modernity uh, and i we in, in class we read anthony giddens and this is one of giddens big things is actually the theme of trust in modernity the big question of the modern world that really does shape everything from contemporary politics to contemporary culture is precisely who, how does trust form? Who, does, who do people actually trust? And that very much defines civilizations and is a very insightful way to, to, to look at our own. And on what you said, it reminds me of um, a while ago, I was reading through Luke and Acts and one of the most fascinating things I, I, I think you can observe in the text is toward the end of Luke and Luke and the beginning of Acts, in Jerusalem, the tri there's a trifecta sort of between Jesus and the apostles, the religious leaders, and the people. There's always the right. people around. Right. And they're the kind lingers, of yeah. the people are always kind of flip-flopping yeah. like this. Uh, and of course, the, the success of the Pharisees is that the people eventually sort of take part in the crucifixion, really. Uh, and it, it becomes all the more striking in Acts after Pentecost, then when the apostles are all sitting in front of the people. And you start to, it starts to say things like, and the priests converted and the Levites converted. And of course, right. Paul is sort of the climax of the- And the Pharisees converted as well. Yes, right? the, yeah, yeah. yeah the, the Pharisee of Pharisees converted. Yeah. yeah. And so the power struggle is sort of all over this, you know, who are the people trusting? With, yeah. you know, who are, you know, giving them the words. Uh, very and fascinating. Even in that sense, you, you know, like something like miracle, I, I tell my students, like, just erase the word miracle. You know, it's one of those English words, those Anglo words- like hell that have developed that really have no contact with the text anymore. They lose, there, there is no Hebrew or Greek word for miracle, right? Right. Uh, it's signs and wonders, which means they are signs to signify something and they cause wonder. Right. Um, and, and you know, so if you think about the, that kind of, and I don't know the etymology or the reasons for it, but I would suspect that the idea of miracle that Hume is going to go after doggedly and wrongedly right. um, is is this kind of autonomous like it's a metaphysical act right right and if you look at the text miracles are are basically just so you will look up and listen to who's speaking and of course according to deuteronomy 13 and 18 which jesus is very careful that he is playing by the rules of deuteronomy 13 and 18 about future prophets of israel right that god says i'm going to send prophets i'm going to put give them signs and wonders so i'm going to authenticate them right and then i'm going to cause them to lie in order to test you, right? So there is no such thing. I mean, I know we, we find the phrase in the New Testament, but there really is no conceptually no such thing as a true prophet and a false prophet in Israel. It's it's prophets who are authenticated by Yahweh himself who can speak truly or they can speak falsely or presumptuously right. at times, right? And you see all of those instances of, of prophets speaking truly, prophets speaking presumptively, and then prophets uh, speaking in deceit. In the Hebrew Bible, we see stories that give you examples of right. what this looks like. And Jesus is a very aware of this, that everything he says must be true. It must come true. It must be true to life. It has to fit. It has to abide by the Torah. It can't go outside the Torah um, or it can't overthrow the Torah or rebuke the Torah in any kind of principled way. Mm. Um, and it's all it all works in coordination so that Jesus realizes the miracle, as we call them, the sign and the wonder, it just gets you to look up and listen. But then the thing that he does right. and says from that point has to dovetail with um, the disciplining of God and, and, and the plan of God. So it's Jesus's own reverence to the system that I think should be impressive to all of us, how much time he spent earning the credibility uh, mm. to, to have true disciples, not the disciples that just came along with him because we realized some of them dropped off. Some of them uh, died by suicide, et cetera. Um, but those true disciples who, who pushed through and listened to his voice and did what he said in order to see the kingdom of God that was invisible to everybody else. Mm -hmm. And I just want to point out, so that all sounds like theologically Sunday school kind of stuff. Right. 
But if I had just said that using slightly different Greek terms or German terms, you know, um, yes. we're, we're having a philosophical discussion. Like we nothing are. I'm saying is not a philosophical discussion. Right. We've become immune to it uh, because of the Christianese involved. But um, I, right. I want to point out that this is, is, this is just as theological and philosophical as anything Socrates said. Right. Well, it's been a delight to talk about these things again. We're talking with Dr. Drew Johnson. The book is Biblical Philosophy, a Hebraic Approach to the Old and New Testaments. I highly recommend it. I mean, I read a little bit in this in this field, and it is a very unique text bringing together conversations. I People I have not seen put in conversation with one another. So I think this will be just a very important text. I'm very, very happy about it. Thanks again for, for joining us. Such a privilege to have you. Well, and, I'm, uh, I'm honored, and uh, you have put questions to me that I've never had before. So oh, good. Kudos, kudos <laughs> to you. <laughs> we try to do here. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. You can find us on uh, Facebook and YouTube. Typically, Dale uh, takes us out, and so he has the script memorized. I don't. Uh, so I'm just going to do it informally and say thanks, and we'll see you next time.